0: Hey Missio, our reading today is from Hebrews 4.14 through 5.10. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people, And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek.
1: Thanks, Jana. So nice to see her face. Good morning. Yeah, a little bit of energy there this morning. I like it. It's my favorite when there's interaction. So I feel like I'm with you and you're with me. And so thanks for that. We're continuing on in our series looking at um, how Jesus reveals to us who God is, the character of who God is as revealed to us in Jesus. Um, John chapter 1 and verse eight, 18 says that no one has seen God but Jesus makes God known. Then Hebrews 1 says that God has spoken through the prophets, but now God has spoken to us through Jesus. So we have this exact representation of God in Jesus. And then in Colossians, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so if we want to understand who God is, we look to Jesus. Jesus reveals to us who God is. And so this Easter, we've been looking at who Jesus is so that we can understand more who God is. And our images of God matter because they inform our faith, where we place our trust. And it's out of that place of faith where our actions are born. Our beliefs take on, form, and shape in our actions from our faith and trust. And so our images of God, where we're placing that trust and faith is important because that belief motivates the activity and animates our lives. And so there's a deep correlation between what we believe and who we are in the world. And so how we understand and believe Jesus is very, very important. Our image of who God is matters. And that's why we've been looking this Easter at Jesus, because Jesus reveals to us who God is, reveals where we're putting our trust and our faith, so that our actions can be animated by a true picture of Jesus. And we just heard Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4. verses is 14 to 510, if you want to grab the Bible or your... Um, tablet or your phone, and there's a lot going on in that text, a lot going on there, and there's lots of things we could look at. But what I want us to look at today, we're going to focus on the characteristics of Jesus that are human, that the writer of the Hebrews highlights for us. This picture here in this text is a picture of Jesus that is so human, which is so helpful for us in understanding God. And the writer here, what, the place that we're going to focus on is how Jesus interacts with us. There's these very clear um, words that tell us how Jesus interacts with us. And so that's where we're going to focus. And so as we focus on that, I want you to be thinking about a couple of questions. As we see how Jesus interas- interacts with us, I want us to ask ourselves does that change the way that we interact with God? As we will see today how Jesus interacts with us, I want us to ask, does that change the way that we interact with God? And does that change the way that we interact with each other? So we'll begin with Hebrews chapter 4. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks for the revelation of God in your person. Help us to come um, to this text today with a curiosity, with a sense of humility, with an openness, so that our our images of you can be made new in what you reveal to us about yourself today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, Hebrews chapter four, verses four to 16. So here the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a high priest. And that's not really something that we encounter on a day-to-day basis, right? So thankfully, the writer also summarizes the job description of the high priest for us, just in the next chapter in verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer sacrifices, gifts, and sacrifices for sins. So the high priest is selected from among the people, appointed to be a representative of the people, to represent in matters related to God, and so to offer gifts. Some of those gifts are for gratitude and celebration, and also to offer gifts for sacrifices for sins. So that is the job description of the high priest, thank you, writer to the Hebrews for those of us who don't rub shoulders with that position often, which is all of us, right? But it's a position of power. And I think we all kind of walk in here with different understandings of power, and it often has to do with the amount of power that we hold, is sometimes how we bring definition to power. And all of us have some power to varying degrees. We're in our workplace, in our home space, when we go to the grocery store, like we're, we're all occupying different levels and holding different amounts of power. And when there is equity in relationship or in systems, um, it's usually in the best interest of others to have concern for other people. So when you're with your peer, you're kind of in it together, and so it affects both of us or all of us, whatever happens, and so there's kind of a vested interest in, like, taking care of each other. Like, that's usually what happens when there's equity, and, you know, you could say, like, that's because there's love for each other, but it also could just be, like, motivated by self-interest, you know? Like, if you're okay, I'm okay, like, let's work together on this, you know? equity. But the thing about power is that when there's a power differential that is steep, it is hard for the person who has more power to imagine that anything that the less powerful person would do will make any difference to them, which to be honest is usually true. The more power you have, like the less significant it is to your life when the person who has less power like, it's not really affecting you that much. And so often, for the person with less power, it's, there's a considerable, like, less consideration that the person with more power has. And usually, those of us who have more power aren't that comfortable admitting, like, how less of a concern we have for people who have less power than us. Like, if we're really honest about it, we like to think that we have concern but I think we have less concern that we, that we would care to admit. And that's true in institutions and systems, and it's also true interrelationally. And it happens like every day, these differentials, these power differentials that mean that we don't actually have to see people or care about them or concern, have any concern. And so oftentimes um, there's a sense of feeling unseen or unheard. And that may be true of you. In your workplace. Or in a certain relationship. Like you know what that feels like when someone who has more agency or more power like, doesn't actually consider you. And Simone Weil, who is a French philosopher, she talks about um, supernatural justice or the supernatural virtue of justice, and she said this. She says, it is behaving as though there were equality when one who is stronger is in an unequal relationship. So meaning that we behave as though we have equal power, even when power is tipped in one way, we behave like it's actually equal. That's how she would define supernatural justice. And to be honest, it's described for us in Philippians chapter 2 of Jesus. Jesus didn't see equality with God as something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself and took on the form of a human. And that's this picture of supernatural justice because Jesus emptied himself He stooped out of position into humanity in order to create this sense of equalness, this balancing. And we know that in theory. Like, I think if I talk to any, maybe any of you individually, you'd be like, oh yeah, Jesus, we am a human, and that was really great. And like, it's good that we know that. But I don't know that we always understand what that feels like because we have all of this other noise related to power around us. So then if Jesus, who is God, does this action, like, what does that mean when I live in relation to God now? If this is true about Jesus, as revealed in Philippians, in these other texts in the Bible, like, what does it actually feel like then to interact with Jesus? If he's stooped in this way, well the Philippian, I mean, the Hebrew writer is telling us. What is it like to be in company with Jesus? We do not have a high priest, one who is in power, who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. We do not have a high priest, one in power, who does not understand our weakness, but empathizes with us. And so Jesus empathizes with our weakness. And to empathize is to be affected with the same feeling. I, I'm feeling with you. Empathy is this, like, withness is the only way that I can describe it. Like, I, I feel you that's empathy. And to have empathy, you have to be with the other in order to have it. It's not something that comes like from top to bottom. You you have to be with in order to have empathy. And being with means seeing. I see you. I'm with you. And I think there's a story in Luke's gospel that illustrates this perfectly. So we're going to look at that together. And I'm thankful for a man called Padraig O'Tuma, who's an Irish theologian, for the way that he describes this passage I'm going to read that talks about Jesus and this kind of empathy that Jesus has. It's from Luke's gospel in chapter 7, and kind of the title tells you already Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman. She has a name. When one of the Pharisees, religious, powerful person, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisees' house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisees' house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Then Jesus tells a parable about love. After the parable about love, we'll pick it up in verse 44. Then he, Jesus, turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. If this man knew who she was, she wouldn't, he would, like, if Jesus, this is what this Pharisee thinks, if Jesus knew who she was, he wouldn't allow this to happen because he would know what she's like. She's likely a sex worker. And this religious, powerful person has no space for her. Then Jesus tells a story about love, and then he turned toward the woman and he asks his host a question. It's his own kind of dishonor as he turns away and turns towards, kind of dishonors his host in that moment. And he asks the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? We know the answer to that question. No, he doesn't see this woman. He only sees his judgments of her. His interpretation of her, the name he has given her. He doesn't see her. He sees what he wants to be true about her. And what he sees to be true about her is that she contaminates by association. And Jesus starts to talk and it should be arresting because he talks about her hair and he talks about her kiss and he talks about her touch and he talks about her smell. Likely the very things that make his male companion at the table's vision of her small. Jesus' vision is to see far beyond the things that people use to decipher her. He dignifies her. Maybe even with a deeper dignity than she even knows herself. And he points to this Pharisee that he's actually lost his way. He's lost his way in his judgments. And it begs the question for us who is it that we do not see? Who is it that we will not see? Who is it that you do not see? Who is it that you will not see? I will think about their dignity when they decide to change. There's a lot at the moment that invites us into this way of thinking. I will consider their dignity when they decide to change. That's not how Jesus is. Taking a class by a woman at the moment who has a whole different set of life experiences than a lot of us in the class. And she t- teaches us for two hours and then we have an hour after where she'll answer questions. And so we do it on Zoom. And there are many of the questions that are asked that just seems like so informed and ignorant and kind of ridiculous, Honestly. And I've noticed, like, how much empathy she has for these, for for our ridiculousness, is what I would say. She practices, like, a lot of active listening, and she's tender, and she's open and curious, and there's no reason for it. It should actually be the opposite because of some of the experiences that she's had. And someone mentioned it to her, like, how much of a willingness of empathy she had, and she, like, put her face right up to the screen And she said, this does not come to me naturally. I have to learn this. And you're like, yep, empathy is learned. But there's a boldness in coming to her. She's not going to lie to us. She says things how they are, but she offers help and mercy. Like, she feels us. And she reaches Because empathy doesn't have to remove honesty. It cr- creates a context in which honesty can show up. The woman in this story with Jesus was bold. And Jesus told her that her sins were forgiven. Jesus' words didn't lack honesty, he named that things needed to be forgiven. And his words were also full of goodness. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's a way that we can interact with God. And there's reasons why we can. Because Jesus empathizes with us in our weakness. Later on in chapter 5, it says that the writers of the Hebrews in verse 2 and chapter 5 will tell us that the high priest is gentle. And Jesus, that's how Jesus describes himself in Matthew chapter 11. I am come to me, find rest, because I'm gentle and humble of heart. And it is difficult in a harsh and weighty world to reach and sustain gentleness—it's not the first thing we experience when we turn on the news or when we look on so- social media. Like gentleness is rare, and I want to be clear here that gentleness and empathy are not fragility. Fragility is usually self-focused; it's self. Is centered. Empathy and, gener- and gentleness like considers all. And gentleness is a temperament and a, a behavior. Like when you're gentle, you're both kind and compassionate. And humbleness means that you're not standing over, being condescending or overbearing. That's actually fragility when you're condescending and overbearing. Because Fragility usually shows up with a loss of control and power and a lack of a sense of identity. Empathy and gentleness usually show up out of a sense of secure identity. And humility is this picture of being with. God is with us in the pain, in the suffering, and even in the pain and suffering that we bring upon ourselves. He knows how to identify with our weakness. And it empathizes and brings gentleness and humility into those spaces with us. And I think this withness is most clearly characterized in the rest of chapter 5. Verse seven, during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Here's another characteristic of here is another characteristic of Jesus. He suffered. It's like you can you can if you get into this, you're like, oh yeah, he's cries and tears. And that's before the deep suffering that he experienced. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have a bit of an aversion to suffering. We want to look away. It is so hard to hold the gaze of suffering. And that makes sense. Like often we try to address suffering or we like try to solve it or get away from it or explain it. And often we do those things in such a way that it misses the suffering altogether. Because we're like so desperate to get away from it. Or to get away from the person that is suffering. We offer like this quick fix or solve or explanation. And by doing so, we miss the suffering altogether. Suffering is uncomfortable. And that's putting it mildly. It dislocates us. It dislocates us from God. It dislocates us from each other. It dislocates us from ourselves. It dislocates us from what feels like reality. And one of the worst strands of suffering is its power to make us feel or to make us actually invisible, both to other humans and to ourselves. My own experience and exposure to suffering, probably the deepest suffering I've ever been exposed to, is when I spent nearly a year in an active combat zone in the Sudan. I was 19 years old. It was one of the most formational experiences of my life. And I came back from that moment and I didn't talk about it. Huh. Told myself I wouldn't cry, but I might. The complexity of that situation was hard to wrap words around. I also didn't want to talk about it because I didn't want in any way to diminish the dignity of the people that I had just spent time with by telling stories about them or telling stories about myself. I also felt guilt, a lot of guilt, because I had a plane ticket out, and they didn't, and they don't. And a few months ago, I was talking to a group of people that I've known for about 20 years, and there was one person that was in that conversation that um, didn't know me, and they asked a particular question, and all of a sudden, like this story from that time spilled out. And all those people that have known me for 20 years just looked at me and said, oh, I've never heard that story before. And I was like, right. Right my head. I was like, yeah, because that experience left me mostly silent. And I have a close, close friend called Stephanie Goering Lad, and she has helped me because she wrote a dissertation on suffering for her doctoral work. And she wrote it in light of um, two people, Simone Weil, who is a French philosopher and activist, and then also um, Kathy Kollowitz, who was an artist both born around the same time they lived, both of them lived through the First and Second World War. And so my friend wrote her dissertation on attuning to suffering as revealed by the writings of Simone Weil and the art of Kathy Kollowitz. These two women in this place and time both attuned deeply to suffering. And Kollwitz's son, Peter, died in Flanders in the First World War in 1914. And she made a sculpture between 1937 and 1939 in memorial to Peter and to her own loss. And there's this enlarged version of that bronze sculpture that now sits in a memorial building for victims of war and atrocity in Berlin. And I have a picture of it. My friend Stephanie writes about this picture. She went there. It sits in a former guard house. She says, the former guardhouse is now completely empty inside. The stone block walls and black cobblestone floor bare except for Kollwitz's bronze, which sits in the center of the room directly below an unglazed skylight through which rain and snow fall on the statue. The effect of exposure is remarkable. Walking into a room that is dry except for a circle of rainfall directly on the mother and her son conveys a visceral sense of unprotectedness, of having no shelter and no escape. In the daytime, there is no light in the room except what comes in through the doors and the skylight. Tourists stepping in from the noise of the street, the sidewalk is only a few yards from the entrance, fall instantly silent. There is a hush in the room. Matching the hushed lighting that stands in striking contrast to the bustle outside, the Brandenburg Gate with its throngs of tourists and ring of horse-drawn carriages waiting for customers is just up the same boulevard. Kollwitz's sculpture, set off masterfully by the room's architecture, seems to arrest visitors. The mother's raw, mute sorrow, like the silence between sobs. Her whole body embodies embrace of her son's dead form that comes into tactile focus in her right hand, pressed to her mouth and covering her forehead, and in the left hand cradle his fingertips, holds people still and draws them into hesitation. Even children tend to move slowly and speak gently. There are many kinds of silence, and the silence in the memorial building is a very particular kind. It is not the languid, dreamy silence of a riverbank on a late summer afternoon, or the thoughtful silence of brooding over a tricky but satisfying problem, or the shocked silence that follows an unexpected insult. It is the tense silence of witnessing suffering. Stephanie, as a theologian, goes on to say, God is love. And God made the world in an act of self giving generosity. When the good creation became devastated by sin, God extended this generosity in Christ's incarnation and passion by joining human beings in their most unbearable and disfiguring suffering. Jesus suffered. Simone Weil says that the only thing that begins to help suffering is to be attended to by attention. Compassionate attention, as my friend Steph would say. And when the Bible says Jesus suffers, I believe that that is God's compassionate attention. God does not look away. God enters in. God's compassionate gaze is in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And God coming to us in our weakness and in our pain is what heals us, saves us. That's eternal salvation. We restores our humanity back to us. He gives our humanity back to us. as we read it says that jesus asked to be spared of this suffering and yet the beloved son died and what does that mean yes it's comforting to know that god is in it with us there's a deep understanding that god has of us and for us there's a seenness and in that seenness and being felt, God is gentle and humble in the way that God interacts with us. And there's also the reality that God is not taking away suffering from us and our lives at the moment. And you might ask Why? I don't have an answer to that. I don't know why God does not take suffering away. But there is a direction that we are pointed in, in the midst of our suffering. That these words point us in the direction to walk in the midst of our suffering. that we lament the suffering of our own making and the making of others and we learn compassionate attention. When we admit that we don't see people, only our judgments of them, we practice compassionate attention. when we don't look away or dismiss or excuse the violence and death towards Asian-American women and community members, we practice compassionate attention. When we learn to be with, even as it costs us, because staying with suffering is costly. It's costly when it's our own, and it's costly when we stay with others that are suffering. When we learn to be with, we practice compassionate attention. And we also need to learn or we must learn to be receivers of God's compassionate attention. As we see how Jesus interacts with us in this invitation, it's a way for us to interact with God that we could come confidently and boldly no matter what anticipating and expecting like that woman did, or like it says here in the passage, expecting God to treat us with gentleness and with empathy and with withness. That we would anticipate that kind of interaction with God. And it's a, a way for us to interact with each other. Do people have courage to come to you because of how they know they'll be received? I'll ask you that again. Do people have courage to come to you because of how they know they'll be received? And you don't automatically have to say yes or no. It's probably a bit of both. Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. And if it's no, it's likely that you are in need of some compassionate attention, because if you don't have it to give, you likely haven't had it. So get it. Don't turn away from your own suffering or your own pain. It costs other people when you don't have those things attended to because then you don't have it to offer out into the world. And so if there's a place or a person that you're feeling you don't have it to give, identify that. Let yourself be in need of that compassionate attention and turn to God for it or turn to a trusted friend to give it so that you then in turn have it to give. and i believe that that is the way that we partner with jesus and i think that that is the way that we begin to alleviate suffering in the world so as we take thanks as we take this cup you can take it with me now or you can think about it and this bread we take it as a picture of remembrance, as a picture of reality of Jesus who embodied God's self in order to be treating us as equals that we become brothers and sisters. And as you take it, I want you to think about where you need God's compassionate attention God is love, and God made the world in an act of self-giving generosity. When the good creation became devastated by sin, God extended this generosity in Christ's incarnation and passion by joining human beings in their most unbearable and disfiguring suffering. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm mindful that today we've been attuning to something that is difficult for us to do. Both as we attune to systemic racism, as we look at this text, and I pray that you would give us a capacity for compassionate attention so that we would be able to partner with you in alleviating suffering in the world thank you that we can come to you and anticipate empathy and witness that you feel us thanks that we can come to you and we can expect gentleness thanks that we can come to you and know that you are humble of heart and so I pray that we would like scoop all of that into ourselves so that that's the type of offering that we can give out into the world and so spirit transform us into those kinds of people who don't look away from suffering. But we learn to hold its gaze, even if it's costly, so that we have something of substance to give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.